Good morning. Our text today is a bit of an onion in the sense that it has many different layers, lots of ways we could take it. And what we're going to see today, what we're going to focus on is an individual, a broken individual who is functioning in the text as a demonic outpost. This is a man who has forgotten his own name, is an outcast from society, is being used in a way as a suit for demons. And in their vileness, they rip at his flesh. They tear at his skin with rocks, seemingly for sport. We're not told how this man came to this sorry condition, but what we are told is that Jesus has come. The great snake crusher, the strong man of God, has come to set his captives free. And that's what we're going to see today. So let's join together as we read Mark 5, 1 through 20. It's going to be up on your screen. Follow along in your bulletin. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. And no one had the strength to subdue him. And night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid." And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting back into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. He did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy upon you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. It's a harrowing scene. Jesus and his disciples from last week, they've just gotten off their dangerous sea journey. And no sooner does Jesus step foot off the boat than this poor man who is demon-possessed comes wailing and, and sputtering at him. And he says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? We've been asking this question, who is Jesus Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And the demons have figured it out (laughs) before we knew. The demons know exactly who Jesus is. This man had suffered a long time with madness, 
We're told that he was possessed by a legion of demons. They forced him to live among the tombs with the dead. And perhaps you can imagine that sometimes he he would come to himself and he'd realize what was going on and, and yet he was helpless. The demons would send him into fits and seizures and cause him to act out in violence against himself, against others. You can imagine the mothers in the surrounding cities using him almost as a boogeyman. Children, you better, you better behave or I'll send you to Legion. Watch out for the boogeyman by the tombs. The authorities themselves were told here from the scripture that they're helpless. They bind him, they, they send out their men, they, they put him in chains and shackles, but he breaks them. They can't do anything about it. He's untamable. He's more beast than man. He's hopeless. But here comes Christ. And the demons, knowing who he is, what he has power to do, are terrified. And they come running to him. They say, speaking through the man, I adjure you by God. I plead with you. Do not torment me. Jesus asks them what their name is. The demon replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. And then the rest of the story plays out in this really strange way, which we're not going to go into depth about the pigs and all that stuff. That's, we can talk about that later. But they ask about, can we go to the unclean pigs? And Jesus says, yes, you can go to the pigs. The pigs are whipped into this frenzy and 2,000 pigs. I mean, you can imagine if you've ever been around pigs, the noise, the squealing. And they're just whipped into this frenzy as they rush headlong into the water and they drown. And the herdsmen that see this are naturally terrified and they flee the scene. They, we need to go get help. Something's going on. What's happening? Our whole livestock, our livelihood is gone. They rush to tell others and the people return. And now they're even more afraid. Now we just saw this last week. They were terrified of the storm. The disciples were scared of the storm. But once Jesus calmed it, they were even more fearful. They were even more scared of Jesus' power. Well, now they've come back and here's Legion. The untamable man, completely tamed, clothed in his right mind. Well, they want Jesus gone. You've caused quite enough trouble here, Jesus. You've been here for, for what, less than an hour, and look what you've done. You, you've killed our pigs. You've killed our, our livelihood. Can, can you please just leave? Haven't you done enough? But the man called Legion, formerly known as Legion, wants Jesus to stay. And can you blame him? If given the chance, would you beg Jesus to stay? Would you beg to go with Jesus? Surprisingly, we're told Jesus doesn't grant the man's request. He agrees to leave. And he looks at the man. He says this. He says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And in verse 20, he went away and began to proclaim the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Now, again, as I mentioned earlier, this is a text with layers. There's a lot going on here. There's there's much that could be said. But I want to focus again on this man, on this particular man that Jesus has interacted with. And I want to see what his life is going to be used for. So there's four points to our interest, uh, our interest for our study today. And here's the first point. The first thing to notice here is the name of the man. His name is Legion. His body had been turned into a strategic demonic outpost for these demons. He's used as a barracks to house thousands of demons, right? Back in the day, a Roman legion was five to 6,000 soldiers. Now, I'm not saying that's how many demons were there, but it's enough demons that they can drive 2,000 pigs into a frenzy. 
And so Jesus is there, and the demons come up to him, and, they, and they're probably trying to intimidate him foolishly. What's your name? Oh, Legion. There's a lot of us. We're, you're outnumbered, Jesus. Don't you know that? Can't you see that? The next idea connected with the name Legion is that of organization. There is a unity here. They are marshaled together for war. And you go, well, what, what for? What are the demons marshaled together? What's their end game here? I mean, they know they're defeated. The demons know ultimately their end is, their end is done. What's their end game? Well, I think to corrupt God's creation, to tarnish the Imago Dei, the image of God in man. I think perhaps they, they simply delight in the, the torture and the pain and the suffering of, of God's creation. But whatever the purpose, we're shown that Jesus' sole purpose for heading here in the first place was to free this man. Charles Spurgeon writes this. He says, It is a sickening thought that while Christians frequently quarrel, we never hear of devils doing so. The church of God is divided, but the kingdom of darkness appears to be one. Now that quote, when I read that, that stopped me in my tracks. And a key takeaway from this passage is the truth that is found in Ephesians 6. Paul says this, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, the demons are motivated. The demons are united in their hatred, and they have power. And in our day and age, I, I think they often uh, don't act like this. I don't think it's as blatant as this. I think they work behind the scenes. But they still delight in tormenting humans whenever they can. I just read this article. Maybe some of you saw it. Uh, in 2021, drug overdoses in, a, in the U.S. hit records high, record highs. I think 108,000 people passed away from drug overdoses last year. Now, humans don't need demons whispering in our ears for us to sin. Okay. Uh, you can't just say, well, the devil made me do it. That's not an excuse. But it certainly doesn't help. How many people in this world, in our in America, are affected in some way by a cloud of demonic activity in their lives? What about fake news? When the devil speaks, what are we told? We're told he lies. The demons are masters of fake news. They are masters of seeding doubt, of uncertainty, of pitting brother against brother. And we can apply this to all aspects of darkness that we see present in the world today. If you look at uh, depression, it's especially high among young people. It's at all-time highs. Church attendance is down everywhere. There are endless culture wars. There are real wars. There's human trafficking. Insert awful thing here. I mean, we could go on for hours about all of this stuff that is obviously a result of the fall, but behind much of it, we're told, are spiritual powers. There's, we fight against fle- not flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers. In Panama City alone, there are three magic shops. Did you know that? <laughs> magic New Age shops that have sprung up recently. Crystals, tarot cards, astrology is the big thing now. All of this is back in vogue. And so I don't say this to, to frighten you or anything. It's just we need to be aware. We need to be aware of what we're, uh, what's actually going on behind the scenes. This doesn't mean we live in fear. It doesn't mean we see devils around every corner and every shadow. It just means that we know what we're up against. Now, we take heart that Satan has ultimately been defeated by Christ on the cross. As Colossians 
2.15 says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. So what does that mean for us today? Well, it means we daily put on the armor of God. We need to be praying people. We need to be fasting people. We need to not just be hearers of the word, but we need to be doers of the word. And as James 4 says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will, what? Flee from you. Well, how do we resist? Martin Luther was famous for many things. One of those things was how he resisted the devil in his life. From childhood, he claimed to have been uh, constantly harassed by demons and the devil and all these things. He, He felt like he was being oppressed by demonic activity. And there's a famous story about one day during the night, he was awakened Uh, by the devil, and he grabbed his inkwell and he threw it at the devil. (laughs) And uh, if you go to his study, you can see a little ink spot on the wall. Uh, Some people say they still paint it on there, you know, to keep it afresh or whatever, but that's a great story. He's quoted as saying this. He says, I resist the devil, and often it is with flatulence that I chase him away. (laughs) Another time he wrote, the best way to get rid of the devil if you cannot kill it with words of Holy Scripture is to rail at and mock him. Music, too, is very good. Music is hateful to him, drives him far away. He said, I often laugh at Satan. There's nothing that makes him so angry as when I attack him to his face and I tell him that through God I am more than a match for him. Jesus says to Peter, Matthew 16, 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Not against the church. So resist temptation, hold fast to scripture, pray earnestly, sing loudly with joy, and if necessary, gas the demons. Last thing to mention here, this man starts the passage with the name of Legion. What does he end in? He ends it with the name of Christian. And there's more power in that title than all the titles the demons could ever give anyone. What does the name Christian apply? It, what, what, does, what does it imply for us? We are Christians. We're here in this room. What, is, what does it imply that we are followers of Christ? Well, it implies a radical change that has taken place, that we have moved from the tombs into life. We have moved from death into life. We are now part of a family. We are not nameless individuals. We are family members. We are a body of believers. And we're told that, therefore, we must accept God's word, that though our sins... Be legion. Christ can just as easily cast them out with a single declaration as he did for this man. The second thing to look at in the passage today is the differing responses that we see from the people who encountered Jesus. You would think that the herdsmen would say, forget the pigs. This is great news. We've we've constantly seen this guy over here. He's been a he's been a real nightmare for all of us. This is wonderful, Jesus. Thank you. But is that what they say? No, instead they want Jesus gone. And the same is true in our day and age. Jesus, for many, is a wild card. His teachings are too radical. His demands are too high. His grace is too good to believe. That couldn't be true. Sit down, Jesus. You're rocking the boat. Please leave. We don't want to lose anything else. These men cared more about their business than the restoration of this man. You see, lovers of ease usually hate Christianity. But the Bible says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? To follow Jesus is a costly thing, but if all we have is Christ, we are rich. We are the richest of individuals. 
Now, what's the other response? It's, it's one of complete devotion from this man. The man says, Jesus, I want to be near you. I want to become your disciple. I, you can't imagine what I've been through. And you changed it in an instant. Nobody could bind me. Nobody could stop me. And then here you come. And you, in an instant, I see the legion of demons drowned. And they can never harm me ever again. Let me follow after you. And you would think Jesus would say, of course. Of course, come, follow after me. But Jesus doesn't say that. He goes. And we're reading this and we're going, Jesus, you answered the wrong prayer. Did you not hear what he said? You answered the prayer of the bad guys, not the good guy. Why can't that man come with you? And the reason this man can't come is because Jesus has something better in store for his life. And you would say, better than being 24-7 with Jesus? How could that possibly be? Which leads to our third point. We must become outposts for the gospel. Jesus tells the man, he says, go home, tell your friends, to your friends, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. You see, Jesus is saying, in effect, you are now my first missionary to the Gentiles. Go. Go, proclaim this good news. Now, obviously, this man is not a Bible scholar. You know, he could not, he didn't go and go, well, let me explain the order of salvation to you. Let me, let me talk to you about justification by faith alone. What, what did he go and do? What was he supposed to tell them? Well, first, he was to tell him of his personal experience. Some of you may be familiar with the name uh, Charles Colson. You know about old Chuck Colson. He was uh, once known as President Nixon's hatchet man. Right? He was the guy who did the dirty stuff behind closed doors. He had to take care of the, the bad business. And he was part of the Watergate scandal and eventually convicted to, and sent to prison for that involvement. Now, it was during that time in jail that Christ claimed him and set him free, so to speak. And once he was released, he started a prison fellowship ministry. And he wrote this. Charles Colson says, but all at once, I realized that it was not my success God had used to enable me to help those in the prison or in hundreds of other prisons like it. My life of success was not what made this morning so glorious. All my achievements meant nothing in God's economy. No, the real legacy of my life was my biggest failure. That is what I was an ex-convict. My greatest humiliation being sent to prison was the beginning of God's greatest use of my life. He chose the one thing in which I could not glory for his own glory. You see, as we saw last week, there are times when God does not immediately calm the storm in your life. Why did God allow Charles Colson to go to prison? Why did God allow this man to be possessed by demons and go through so much pain and, and, and throw away his life for so, so long? And ultimately, we have to step back like we did last week, and we have to say, ultimately, it was for God's glory, but it was for that man's eternal good and the eternal good of countless others. You see, the man says, Jesus, let me be with you. And Jesus says, no, it's better you go home. It may not be better for him in the short term, but it's better for the thousands of people who are going to now come to Jesus, who are going to be brought near to Jesus through his testimony. Now, I want you to picture this really quick as the man returns home. Okay? You have to imagine as he leaves, he, he, he had been a stark, raving lunatic. And he comes and he knocks on his parents' door. 
Run! He's back, he's back, he's coming. Run, run, run! Get, you know, kids, mom! Mom's running upstairs with the kids. She, they're running, they're locking the door. His mom is sitting there. The kids are crying. Do you remember what he did last time when he came back? How he beat us? How his wounds were pus and blood and it was... But then the mom hears a voice. Mama! Mama! It's me. Jesus has made me whole. And maybe the father cautiously opens the door. Dad, Dad, it's me. Spirits are gone. I want to tell you. I want to tell you how this happened. Look at me. I'm clothed. I'm not gibbering anymore. There's, the cuts are healed. Let me tell you about Jesus. What a joyous, happy reunion that must have been. And then we're told he goes from town to town, the ten cities, which is, the, is the, the Decapolis saying, come and hear, come and hear from the man known as Legion. You've heard about me, you've heard the legends, now come hear from the man called Legion. He goes from an outpost for demons to an outpost for the gospel. He went where Jesus was not welcomed with Jesus' own message of deliverance. Come and see the man known as Legion. Another story is found in this. John 4, there's a woman at the well, and we're told that Jesus has to pass through this town. He has to pass through this town to meet this woman. And what is her message? She says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? You see, you do not have to be a religious scholar to be an outpost for the gospel. You simply need to tell what Christ has done for your life. And what this means is that the storm you are currently living in, the darkness, the loss, the illness, the hurt, the sorrow, all of that can one day be a testimony that God will use to lead others to deliverance. The second thing to becoming a gospel outpost is to not tell of your triumph, but of Christ's triumph in your life. Now, in my years as a youth pastor, I've heard lots of testimonies. And if you've ever heard a uh, youth group testimony night, you know it usually goes like this. It's usually 98% scandal of all the scandalous stuff the kid used to do. And then the ending punchline is, but now I'm a Christian. And everybody goes, yay, you know. And that's, that's, that's wonderful. I'm so glad that they, Jesus brought them out of that. But this isn't what is happening here. Our testimony, our story must be Christ centered. Listen to what the man says. He says this. He says, The man went away and began to tell the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. It wasn't how much I suffered and what I went through and woe is me. It was, let me tell you about Jesus. And we're told that all the people were amazed. You see, this man's past life was now a standing sermon of what Jesus had done for him. It was not his sin that defined him, but rather his restoration. Thirdly, we should tell people of God's mercy to us as sinners. This man's story is literally Jesus acting out the parable of the good shepherd in real time. Can you think of any other person who is the one, the one sheep who nobody else wanted, who went astray, the one sheep, and here comes Jesus, the good shepherd, to rejoice with him, to free him, to bring him back to himself. He came to this side of the Sea of Galilee for no other purpose, because they get right back in the boat. His story shows us that Jesus, with Jesus, no one is beyond hope.
Because if this man can be changed, then anyone, even in this room, is not beyond hope. There's no pit so deep Jesus cannot lift you out of. Our fourth and final point today is that we should go home and tell our stories. Jesus says to his disciples, John 20, 21, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And in 1 Peter 2, 9, he says to the whole church, the laity, the clergy, everybody, he says this. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so our final question today is, where is Jesus calling you? As we think about our little church here, how do we pursue the lost in Panama City? I think there are uh, probably three major venues from this passage today that we could pursue. The first is simply to go home. Go home. And what that looks like is you being a godly spouse. It looks like you leading your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It looks like you tending your own garden, making your, your house a gospel outpost in your neighborhood. This means setting aside uh, time for prayer. It means going deeper in your adoration of God and worship. It means reading the Bible with your family. It means making amends with grandparents, parents, siblings. Wherever home is for you, you should go there and you should make peace. You see, the last thing the devil wants is for your home to be a place of rest and safety. He wants it to be strife. He wants strife between siblings. He wants parents to be dishonored. He wants lasting grudges upheld. He does not want you to turn your house into a house of praise. He does not want that. The second venue is to tell your friends. Go home, Jesus says, and tell your friends. So go home to your people and then tell your friends what God has done. Now, I want you to imagine, again, this demon-possessed man. He goes from his house. Now he goes to his friend's house. Oh, great. (laughs) Oh, no. Now he's coming to us. But if your close friend, if a friend you loved, you've been praying for for so long, came to you, they'd been alcoholic, they'd had serious drug issues, and they came home restored, how would you respond? How would you react? You'd rejoice. You'd rejoice. And so go home to your friends, and if you need to apologize for something, go apologize. And if you need to forgive them for something, go forgive them. If there's a place of darkness in your life, Christ says, hold it up to the light, banish it. Tell your friends what Jesus has done for you. Now, in the context of the church, this looks like uh, giving and receiving encouragement to one another. It looks like setting goals. It looks like praying for God to bring these goals to completion. Maybe as a church, we say, hey, you know, in the next uh, five years, we want to do this. We want, to, we want this place to be brimming with people that we have to plan a church. Maybe in the next year, we want 10 new members. We want to baptize five people. We set these goals and we pray for them. We say, Lord, you are the Lord of the harvest. Here are your workers. We're ready. Let's go. Let's strategize. Let's mobilize. Let's encourage and push back against Satan's captives in the community. Let's liberate them. Which leads to our final venue. The final venue is that we must tell our story to everyone. The man doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop with the home. He doesn't stop with the family and friends. He goes to the Decapolis, the 10 surrounding cities, and he tells them. Now, practically, there are very practical ways we do this. First, we need to ask God to uh, set us on fire. Not literally, figuratively. 
See, seeking the glory of God and seeking the salvation of the lost are not two different things. They're one and the same thing. The salvation of the lost is us bringing new people into the fold. It's new creation people glorifying God for his mercy and his love. And the Bible says if you love people like Christ loves you, you will desire for maximum eternal joy for all people. And that's to know Jesus Christ as Savior. But again, it's not going to happen if we're not doers of the word and recipients of God's grace ourselves. Uh, as, again, as a youth guy, this world, this generation is so hungry for a mission. This generation is hungry for adventure. And you see this all the time because they're so quick to latch onto movements and protests and hashtags. They are all about it because they're dying for something to do. They feel helpless in a world of darkness and they want to bring the light somehow any way they know how. And what I'm offering today, what I'm saying the Bible offers you today is the adventure of a lifetime. This is God calling you and your family to go boldly into the strange new world of your neighborhood. <laughs> God is calling you to love your neighbors and to proclaim good news to all nations. You see, our young people desperately need this. But not just our young people, our older people. Everybody needs this. Everyone needs this fire in their belly for God. Our kids need to see us standing up for truth and living as wartime believers. When we fight, though, we need to aim our swords at the right targets, okay? We need to be focused, we need to be balanced, and we need to mostly be people of the word. We have to realize that our battle is primarily a spiritual one. And you can see this because how quickly our lives, in just a normal day, we can leave these doors and immediately our lives are back into the downward spiral of boredom and uh, meaningless and day-to-day -day activities and, and petty little earthly problems. That's how quickly it is. We go out these doors and boom, we're already back into it. But what I'm saying is what if your family needs a trip to the front lines? What if that's the next adventure? What if God is calling you to get your hands dirty? We have a missions committee here at the church who would love to plan a trip. We have Bob Hayes who literally just emailed me like last night. I haven't emailed him back. And he said, what about Uganda? And I'm excited because I would love to go to Uganda. Whether it be home or abroad, there are challenges. There are challenges that we need to take to heart and put our faith in into action. And there are so many of you who already live this way, and I cannot tell you, whether you know it or not, you inspire me so much. And you encourage me by your selflessness day to day, your little actions in the God's kingdom. The author Bruce Shelley, he wrote this, he said, it is easy to determine when something is aflame. It ignites other materials. Any fire that does not spread will eventually go out. A church without evangelism is a contradiction in terms, just as a fire that does not burn is a contradiction itself. So I'm telling you today, seek the fire. Lord, set our church on fire. Ask God to set your heart ablaze with love for him. Pursue it in your marriage, in your relationships, in your friendships, at your job, everywhere. Lord, set this boring, meaningless thing that I cannot, I dread doing during the week. Lord, would you set it ablaze and give me a new passion for it? Secondly, if you don't know where to start, at least start somewhere. I want you to come brainstorm with me. 
Let's work something up. Let's cook it up together. Maybe go volunteer down at the Pregnancy Resource Center. They're always needing help. Our deacons, I, was, I had the privilege of being in the deacons meeting this last night. They were talking about how they're going to do a work day and, and all these things that need to be done. Let's go do that. Let's work together as brothers and sisters. Because perhaps you'd be nervous. and You'd say, I could never do that alone. Well, let's not do it alone. Let's do it together. I doubt that this man did it alone. I think his message would probably attracted a lot of people. And I think those people that marveled said, I want to follow after you because you follow after Jesus. Let's not do it alone. Let's do it together. Thirdly, our final step here is step out of your comfort zone and you will be used mightily by God. There was a famous uh, violinist named Fritz Kreisler. He earned a fortune with his concerts, his compositions. He was very famous. And he generously took every little bit he got and he gave it away. He just gave it away. There was one day he discovered an exquisite violin on one of his trips. Unfortunately, he had no money for it. And so he wasn't able to buy it. Well, later on, he raised money. He came back uh, a long time later. And he said, I'd like to buy the violin that I saw. The shopkeeper said, I'm so sorry. It was recently sold to a collector. Well, Chrysler was not one to give up. So he made his way to the new owner's home, to the collector's house. And he knocked on the door and he said, sir, I would like to buy that violin. The collector said, I'll never part with it. It's one of my prized possessions. You'll never have it. Chrysler was disappointed, but he said, before he leaves, he said, could I just play it? Could I just play it once and then I'll never, I can get it out of my system. The man said, okay, of course you can play it. The great virtuoso filled the room with such heart-moving music. The collector was emotional. And he wept as he heard it. And he said, I have no right to keep this to myself. It's yours, Mr. Chrysler. Take it into the world. Let people hear it. And you see, this is what we're talking about today. God is the master violinist. And we are the instruments of his grace. And though outwardly we may look like not much... When he holds us in his hands, he plays the most beautiful gospel music. And by his grace, we are played to perfection. But we have to take a risk, just like Chrysler took the risk. We have to go, could I play for you? Could I, could I just tell you my story of grace? Practically, it looks like putting yourself out there in specific places, maybe solely for the intent of meeting Someone who you know does not know Jesus. Maybe it means inviting neighbors over for dessert. How awkward that might be for some people. Meet other parents at your child's sporting event. Watch for needs you can meet locally. There's always something to volunteer for in this community. There's always something going on. And then we ask God to bless those efforts. Lord, for your glory. What was the, man's, uh, what was the response to the man's story? End of verse 20. And all the people were amazed. All the people were amazed. All the people were marveled. What a wonderful story. What an incredible story. As we close, I just want to, I want to say that unless you're motivated by love for Jesus Christ, unless you're empowered by his grace, you're not going to do any of this. <laughs> and you're not going to want to do any of this. You're not going to be able to do any of this. You see, the man goes because Jesus changed his life. He goes because he had experienced grace and mercy, and he was thankful. So if you hear me saying all of this, go do this, go do that, and you say, okay, I just got to do more. I just got to do more. I just got to be a better Christian. Oh, you're so right. I just got to do more. That's not what I'm saying. 
You heard me completely wrong. I'm not telling you to do more. I don't want you to do more. I'm telling you that if you claim the name Christian, remember the name Christian that he took, then that will define everything you already do. And I'm telling you that if you are firmly rooted in the love of Christ, the love that he has for you, and the grace that he has shown you, you will not need to try to produce fruit. You will naturally produce fruit. So what I'm saying is love God, love others. That's what I'm saying. It's not simple. It's not always easy. It's often extremely uncomfortable. It's often messy. But at one point in your life, someone took a risk. Someone took a risk and looked at you and said, can I tell you my story? Could I tell you about Jesus? And they did that because they'd been set free. And out of love, out of thankfulness, they wanted you to be free as well. So take this word. This is God's word. Take it today as fertilizer for your heart soil. Take it as lighter fluid to your soul fire. Take it as oil to your lamp. Let it shine. And then go and become an outpost for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.